Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 226, and today's guest is Todd Degris, co-founder and general partner of Spark Capital and co-founder and chairman of Lightboxer. Technology analyst, venture capitalist, philanthropist, entrepreneur, movie producer. These are just some of the roles that Todd has held throughout his career. His track record as a VC is very impressive, but could his latest initiative be his most successful yet? Todd and his co-founder Jeff Morin are jumping into the home-connected fitness ring with Lightboxer. The company recently announced a $20 million Series A round of funding for its full body boxing experience, which includes breakthrough technology to give you a challenging and engaging workout. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Todd's thoughts on the market for tech investing and skyrocketing valuations, his background growing up, plus the early foundational years for his career and how he got into the VC industry, his time at Battery Ventures, including the story of his early investment in Akamai, what led him down the path to start Spark Capital, and what he looks for when making investments there, all the details on Lightboxer from the initial inspiration to building the product, plus some of the details on how they are planning on competing in the home fitness category, advice for founders on hiring and recruiting for their senior management team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can set up a user profile on VentureFizz? By setting up a user profile, you'll have access to personalized content, job seeker tools, and administrative features to help you manage your email subscriptions. To create a user profile and maximize your experience on VentureFizz, go to venturefizz.com backslash register to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Todd. Todd, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because we have so much to talk about. Um, I got involved in the tech industry in 1998, and um, I'll never forget the day that Akamai went public, and you were you know, one of the first believers in that company as an investor. So we're going to talk about that. You're an entrepreneur, and you've got an exciting company, Lightboxer, that it's so cool what's happening in the fitness industry and talk about a great workout boxing. I don't think you can uh, top that. So I'm excited to learn more about Lightboxer. But to kick things off, I wanted to talk about the current state of tech investing. And Dan Premack from Axios, he had a very timely, um, his, his daily email was very timely today because he talked about how things are hitting an all-time record in all these categories. 140 billion from VCs have been invested in US startups in the first half of 2021, an all-time record. Uh, you know, acquisitions, all-time record. 410 companies went public on the NASDAQ in the first half of 2021, all-time record. You know, every day you read TechCrunch, it's like new, you know, crazy valuations. Unicorns are minted daily. So I'm gonna breathe. But you know, over the past year, it just seems like things have really accelerated. We 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 entered a year ago, uh, well, March of last year in this pandemic, and everyone was looking around like, what's going to happen? Yet a year plus later, things are absolutely crazy. So I'm just gonna stop talking and like, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. So obviously now it's, it's unprecedented what's going on. I mean, the valuations are breathtaking. What's happening now? If you compare the valuations and if you look at the the multiples and all of that, I mean, it's not like 2000 where you had companies with no revenue that had, you know, tens of billions of dollars in uh, valuations. Now there are real companies out there, but the valuation multiples are still breathtaking. Uh, you know, I think years of interest rates being at zero that creates just a, 
a very fertile environment for valuations to go high, especially in equities, because you know, you're not going to put money in anything interest-bearing now and get any kind of return. So you're going to look for other places to put your money. Uh, there's growth in technology, clearly. I mean, there, it's kind of a bit of a flywheel where more money's going in, creating more innovation, more innovation causes you know, liquidity, liquidity uh, opportunities now are massive. So then people want to put more money into the system. And it's just kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy until it's not. At some point, the party ends. And, you know, I went through a couple of hangovers. Uh, I went through the, the hangover in 2000, went through the hangover in 2008 and nine, And uh, there's going to be another hangover coming. Can't tell you exactly when. Uh, but now you have that extra, you know, you have the trillion dollar stimulus packages going through. Um, you know, we're kind of writing checks now that our kids or maybe grandkids are going to have to make good on. Uh, makes me nervous. Uh, but at the same time, I've never seen liquidity like this, never seen valuations. It's a wonderful time uh, if you can get liquid. Uh, the question is, is it a great time to be investing money uh, in companies that will reach liquidity in two, three, four, five years? That's a tougher one. That's a tougher one. We know at some point the music's going to stop. And there's just not going to be as much uh, music, uh, as much money to go around. Uh, investors are going to get much tighter. They're going to, there's going to be a bifurcation. The quality is going to suck up all the money and the companies that aren't quite at that quality level where they're category leaders, where they're, they clearly have differentiation and they clearly have a massive opportunity. They'll continue to suck up the money and the ones that don't uh, will suffer. And then the series B's and C's will be ugly. Uh, it won't be a lot of fun, but uh, right now it's pretty fun. And I'll, I'll take it as long as, as possible because, you know, same, I've, I've gone through two different cycles and um, hopefully the next one isn't uh, any time in the foreseeable future. I know it will come at some point. I'm, I'm a realist. But w- what about SPACs? I mean, the, you know, a lot of the public offerings have been through that type of, uh, you know, vehicle and like, it, do you think SPACs have been like a good thing for the market? I, I think it's good to have alternatives. It's good to have options. SPACs have been around for many years. It's not like all of a sudden we invented the SPAC. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so you have IPOs, the traditional IPOs, you have direct listings, and now you have SPACs. Uh, there's even some, you know, some private markets that, are, uh, that have emerged where you can buy stock in in highfalutin uh, private companies. And then when they go public, you own stock in, in those and you can get liquidity if you're currently a stockholder in those companies. So things have, have, have really just kind of just the heat has been turned on in all of these areas. And with SPACs, just like traditional IPOs, there's good ones, there's bad ones. There's a continuum of SPACs. There's some SPACs that are just bad ideas, really, really bad ideas, just people off you know, raising money and then figuring out where to invest it. And there's only so many exciting companies there that are going to merge with a SPAC. Uh, there are, you know, I just took a company public called First Dibs and uh, we had lots of SPAC opportunities and we opted for a traditional IPO because we felt that was the be- better way to go. Um, we've had companies that have merged with SPACs because that was a better way to go. We've had companies that have done direct listings like Slack um, and they thought that was a better way to go. It kind of depends on is it fundraising or is it liquidity um, you know, for, uh, for investors or is it not even liquidity? It's just uh, you know, floating the stock um, so that the, it's all secondary liquidity, not primary liquidity. In other words, the company's not raising money, they don't need it, uh, but they wanna give shareholders a chance to get liquid. So it, it's kind of, 
they're part of the same, you know, basic family of liquidity opportunities. And it just kind of depends. I mean, I've seen some SPACs that uh, are managed by smart people. Uh, they have good taste in the companies they're going to go after as targets. And the company, good companies will work with them because they believe that uh, a SPAC is right for them and they like the team and they like the approach. I mean, it's, a, it's all about the pipe and can you have that pipe available in the event that uh, there are redemptions and things like that. So I, I will say there are a number of SPACs right now. It's kind of like the uh, the rat going through the snake. Uh, and at some point there's going to be, it's happening now where SPACs are just running out of time uh, and they're not going to be able to merge and not going to be able to de-SPAC and it's not going to be pretty. Is, what is it? Is it a two-year window or is two years. it yeah. two years? Yeah. And there's uh, SPACs right now that are approaching that six month period where it's, you start to get really nervous you know, it's like uh, musical chairs and uh, you know the music's going to stop and you better find a chair uh, or you just don't complete your SPAC, which, by the way, sometimes not completing the SPAC is way better than completing the SPAC. Yeah, I, I, I could go even deeper on this topic, but because there's so many questions, it's an interesting topic that I, I just find fascinating. But let's shift back to you. So uh, I love the background story. So talk about your background. Like, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? I was a terrible child. No, I, so I, <laughs> I grew up in a, a town called Byfield, Massachusetts, which is North Shore of Massachusetts, where if you drive through it and blink, you'll miss it. Um, and, uh, you know, my father was a professional baseball player. So I was kind of always sports oriented. And, you know, when I was a baby, he was playing for the, you know, Baltimore Orioles and, uh, and playing in the, in the minor leagues. Uh, he made it to the majors one year. So um, kind of come from that sports related background and kind of grew up in Byfield um, and, you know, always was, uh, you know, kind of interested in investing and gambling and entrepreneur. I, I, I learned to read a racing form when I was eight years old. I was actually betting on dogs and horses when I was eight years old. Uh, my father owned a, a, a racing horse and then he ended up owning some racing dogs. So I kind of learned to gamble at a at a young age. Uh, and gambling just means you're synthesizing loads of information to try to pre predict an outcome. So I think that was pretty good training. And then, uh, you know, always had the entrepreneurial bent, you know, I did everything from sell seeds to all kinds, just sell, selling all kinds of things as a kid. Uh, and then started picking stocks uh, instead of dogs and horses kind of in my early teens, uh, even when, you know, I had to have a, an adult account had somebody like as a shill for me because I was too young to trade stocks and things like that and learned how to lose money at a young age in the stock market. Um, but also learned, um, you know, a lot about uh, analyzing information and data. And then, you know, did the typical kind of school thing, went to a liberal arts school, played baseball there, which was fun. And then uh, kind of caught the bug, the technology bug uh, at towards the end of uh, my uh, school time. And then all I really wanted to do is work for a digital equipment corporation, which at the time back in, you know, when I graduated in 1982 uh, was a high flying mini computer company. And it, it just captivated me, the, uh, the story there and all that. So I kind of was interested in technology and ended up going to work for digital uh, in their internal consulting organization. I was a psych major, so I wasn't going to write code and I wasn't going to, you know, uh, work on uh, semiconductor and stuff like that. I just wanted to be in technology. So I went there and be, uh, they had an internal management sciences group, which is like a internal McKinsey. Uh, 
uh, focused solely on digital and its business. So I, I did that for a bunch of years and then ended up uh, kind of going into the networking space and working in a networking group because it was the most complicated thing at the time that you could, even within computing, which was complicated, networking was even more complicated. And I figured if I did, if I went into something that was really complicated, I might have some differentiation. So I kind of went and did that. And then from there, uh, I got recruited to go to the Yankee group and uh, sell some snake oil for a while and learned, a, it really broadened my perspective of technology. And I really kind of wallowed in it and got you know deep enough to be dangerous um, you know, in, in all sorts of technology, primarily communications network. Uh, it was still early for the internet back then. And then I got tapped on the shoulder by uh, a Wall Street firm that wanted me to go and be a Wall Street analyst. And I thought that sounded like fun. So I did that for uh, a couple of years and I got tapped on the shoulder to go into venture capital. Um, and that also looked quite interesting. I was uh, recruited to Battery Ventures and went to Battery Ventures um, as a kind of junior partner back, um, you know, in the uh, mid 1990s, uh, timing was really good. Got in there like 94, and then managed to uh, kind of have my feet under me uh, going into 2000 when uh, the dot com boom happened. So uh, timing there was pretty good, and and then from battery uh, was there for nine years, and then decided I had to do my own thing and started Spark. Let's let's unpack that a little bit. So, uh, battery. How did you connect with the founders of Akamai? And you know, like investments, we already talked about. They're like Series A seed rounds are just insane. What numbers are thrown out? So, kind of very different in terms of like seed and Series A back then. So, how did you get connected with you know the, the founders of Akamai and and see that through? Like uh, like a lot of VCs at the time. Um, you know, being in, based in Boston, I would hang around MIT uh, because a lot of smart people came out of there and a lot of entrepreneurial people. So I hung around there and I got introduced to the founders through the MIT 50K contest. I think now it's at 100K and at some point it'll be the MIT million dollar. I won't be around, but it'll be the million dollar deal. Uh, anyway, so um, got introduced to the founders in that process. I was their advisor for the 50K contest. I think they came in fourth or something like that. and. Um, and then they wanted to start a company. Uh, they had a notion of starting a software company that would help other companies uh, go into the content distribution business. Like they would help the phone companies and the cable companies get into content distribution. They kind of invented um, you know, the, a new way to do content distribution, like distributed servers out there that would act as um, you know, like virtual servers for companies' content and all that. Um, and uh, I convinced them, I, you know, I, I invested in their first round and I convinced them to become a service rather than a software company. Cause I felt this technology is so novel and it has so much IP behind it. Why sell it to other people? Maybe why wouldn't we just do a, you know, just keep the technology to ourselves and, and do a service. And it worked out pretty well. And even fast forward today, it's, you know, an anchor tech company in Boston and it's still like so much is routed through Akamai that, you know, as consumers, we have no clue whether it's gaming or streaming video, you know, everything is just, you know, amazing how much goes through Akamai. Oh, I mean, it's amazing. They've transformed too. I mean, they've made loads of acquisitions. It used to be just how cheap can you distribute content? Uh, how fast can you, can you get, you know, when you hit enter keys for the content to show up? 
And then they started getting more into security and now security and application acceleration and all that. Uh, so that I'm very proud of them. They've really done a great job staying current and, and, and adding constantly adding value to their platform. It's a testament to when they did go public. Like I said, you know, I, I remember that day and it was just one of those high-flying accelerated IPOs where the stock price just shot up. And, you know, <laughs> you know, I was in the tech industry working for a recruiting firm and I would just watch all these companies go public. But with Akamai, there was a real business there. There was a real service that was needed. It wasn't, you know, the classic pets.com type of thing back in the day where it didn't have the revenue to support the stock price or valuation. But Akamai, there was like real value there. So it just makes a world of sense of why there's still just a great company. Well, there was real value, absolutely, because, you know, we can tell by history. But mm -hmm. at the time we went public and at one point we were approaching, a, I think, a $30 billion valuation, which back then was unprecedented. The company only had trailing revenue of $900,000. And then when the dot-com bubble burst, I remember it traded around a dollar a share or something like that. And I close to a dollar and a half. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if this story is true, but my memory is going back. Did, didn't George Camarades like buy like a million dollars worth at the time? It was like, oh my God, but it showed conviction that this company is going to be around. Not just him. It was uh, George, Tom Layton, who's one of the founders, Paul Sagan, who was at the time, um, the funny story is, uh, when I invested in Akamai, uh, it was a professor and his PhD student who had a kind of a combined uh, six months as an IBM intern uh, between them in business experience. So I asked Paul Sagan to go in there and babysit them. And then next thing you know, the company goes where it goes and Paul eventually became the CEO, did a great job. And then Tom Layton, one of the co-founders at the time, then took over and he's the current CEO. So that it's an amazing story of a, a founder giving up the CEO role and then gradually getting it back. You know, Tom is a genius. So he just learned by watching George and by watching Paul. And then Paul's the kind of guy where he can watch and then he can even, you know, make things better. And then you went on and had other investments, mainly in like networking while at Battery, like Arbor and Broadbus. So, which makes sense based on hearing your background story too. Now it all kind of like connects the dots for me. So now what, what led you down the path of starting your own venture capital firm? Well, you know, at, at Battery had a good run there. Battery was kind of more of an infrastructure and kind of hardware systems investor at the time and, and enterprise software. And uh, it wasn't a firm that was really comfortable with consumer and particularly consumer content. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do consumer, I wanted to do content. Uh, I wanted to participate in the kind of democratization of content. And when I did the Broadbus um, investment, it just opened up my eyes that uh, all this content, it's locked in vaults at places like Disney and Paramount and Sony and all these, and the, and the Times and all these places was gonna get unlocked by the internet. It was pretty clear to me that the can, the can opener was gonna you know, go in and open up all this all these cans full of content and it was gonna flow. And then also that individuals could create content because now they had the internet as their distribution medium. So I kind of wanted to do that. I didn't feel like I wanted to do that at, at Battery. It was gonna be, uh, I was gonna have to convince a lot of people that uh, we were gonna take that kind of consumer risk. Um, and I, I had a good run and it was time for me to do my own thing. So I decided to go and start Spark. And how did you and your other co-founders Spark all kind of come together to, to start Spark? Well, my co-founder, Santo Politi, he and I were the, were the two investors in Broadbus. So we met there. 
we both experienced Broadbus, which was a basically an on-demand TV platform company. So you basically, if you um, if you own a network and you have access to content, you can take that content and basically put it on demand. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't really just putting movies on demand. It was putting all kind of content on demand through a broadcast, uh, you know, infrastructure, but making it more of a you know point to point. Um, kind of an experience for the customers so they could get access to all kinds of content on demand. And that opened up both of our eyes to this opportunity of this democratization of content, which ended up turning into social media and UGC and YouTube and all that. It just kind of took on a life of its own. Yeah, it is pretty crazy to see how some bold bets were made back then that weren't too far off. I had Bob Mason of Argon Ventures now on uh, the podcast and he was one of the co-founders of bright cove and their original prototype there's a youtube video out there that shows what they were thinking and it's not too far off from where things ended up with you know the netflixes of the world and, and others it's pretty cool Absolutely. i remember remember napster i mean napster came along and they were uh, this yeah. naughty company that all the music companies wanted to kill and then they kind of did and then next thing you know it's uh, apple spotify and pandora and all this and then similar things happened in you know, in the video space as well uh, with YouTube and then Hulu. And now you look at what's going on with the streaming uh, suppliers um, who are now getting into the content business like Netflix and Amazon and all that. So, um, you know, oftentimes the first company out into a space where they're trying to disrupt the space, uh, take a bullet in the head uh, because they're small and the big guys gang up on them and they don't want to see that new wave rise, but then somebody else comes and grabs the baton and keeps going. And then uh, if it's a good idea, it ends up, um, you know, being successful like we're seeing now. Yeah. And like Sean Fanning of Napster fame, and, you know, he's obviously successful since, but he was at Northeastern <laughs> starting this company. And he, uh, if like I've, I've heard multiple times, if it wasn't for Napster with the peer-to-peer sharing of how computers were talking to each other, like we wouldn't be where we are. I mean, there's so much credit that should be deserved to Napster of that disruption, not only just the streaming you know, uh, Spotify's and Apple services, but just how everything is is communicated now. Yep, yep. They blazed a trail, Crazy. and uh, you know they they suffered a lot for it. It happens a lot, but there you go. I mean, Spotify in the early days they had a tough time. Um, you know, we've we've seen that over and over again. But the persistent companies uh, can can persevere and and be successful. All right, so. Spark Capital's had a number of successful portfolio companies. Uh, you mentioned one of your investments uh, recently went public, First Dibs. So, uh, you know, talk about your investment strategy. Like, what, what do you generally look for as it relates to you know your the investments that you're particularly making? Really, try to keep it simple. Really, you're just looking for category leaders. You really are looking for a company that could be the leader of an emerging category. Those are the companies that become the unicorns and all that. So that's really what you're, you know, day after day looking for. And if you're looking even deeper, you look for really talented, driven teams uh, that have a unique product that you think has some ability to, to maintain its advantage going after a large market opportunity. So there you've got a few variables you got to deal with. Some people debate team over market. Uh, I think, you know, if somebody asks me, you know, do you need, is it, What's more important, the team or the market? I say yes. You know, I, it, it kind of depends. You, you, you kind of need both. Uh, you can't have a terrible team in a great market or a great team in a terrible market. You have to have a good enough team in a great market or a great team in a good enough market. 
Um, but you also, you know, want to make sure that uh, they're building something where there's there's customer value. One thing we learned at Spark is we learned early on that customer engagement is the most important thing you can have. Uh, and people have talked about product market fit and all that, but we just talk about customer engagement. You, every, every company we've ever been involved with has been successful because it engaged with customers. It, it, got, it built a brand around uh, that loyalty. Uh, it built a brand around loyal customers and loyal and happy customers told other uh, people about it and they became loyal and happy customers. And there you can, you know, we always look for network effects and we looked for companies that could grow virally and not have to acquire uh, each customer almost anew. Um, you know, you want to invest in companies where if you, if you acquire a customer, you're actually acquiring 1.5 customers because they're going to bring in, uh, you know, your customers are going to bring in more customers. So, you know, things like that. I mean, we also had a saying inside Spark, which is we don't want to invest in toasters because, you know, there's many different toasters out on the market right now, but they all do exactly the same thing. They make toast. Some are a little better at this, some are a little better at that, but they make, uh, they all make toast and they are fairly commodity oriented and, you know, they don't necessarily have any real differentiated advantage, uh, you know, that time won't solve. So uh, we kind of look for companies that have a unique advantage. All right. So one of the investments that you could have made, but I guess you chose not to, is with, you know, a, a legendary Red Sox World Series winner, Kurt Schilling, when he was building out his video game studio, uh, 38 Studios down in uh, in Rhode Island. So uh, I, I had read somewhere or listened to maybe another podcast that, that you actually looked at that deal. So what what led you down the path of, you know, considering that and not investing ultimately? Well, it was Kurt Schilling. And uh, <laughs> I was a baseball player, uh, you know, not at his level. Of course, my father was a baseball player. So, I, you know, it was Kurt Schilling. It was a chance to meet Kurt Schilling. And also, um, you know, they were building a massively parallel online game, which was in our purview. It was, it was an area that we were, that we had interest in. So I met with him and, uh, you know, it was, it was an interesting attempt to build a, a company that had, uh, that would be a, a basically try to build a blockbuster game. And I know how difficult it is to build a blockbuster game, especially the first time. And I just felt that, uh, you know, the way they were going to go about it. And, uh, you know, they, it was kind of a combination of the the team and the capital intensive nature of what they were doing. It seemed incredibly risky to me. Um, and, you know, we take risk all the time and we usually don't worry a lot about the downside. You can only lose one times your money. Uh, uh, and then you want to leave that upside to be infinite. But in this case, I just felt like the, the downside was going to be significant because they needed a lot of money to produce this game. And I felt like the chances that the game was going to be a, a blockbuster was low. You, you really want to invest in a, a hit factory rather than a hit. And I felt that they were so focused on producing a hit that if it wasn't a hit, they would be dead in the water. So that's why I, even though I, you know, would have loved to, uh, you know, back somebody like Kurt Schilling, it just, uh, it wasn't to be. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, you've, you know, as we've outlined, you've had many successes, but I always love the like anti-portfolio. So the ones that you did pass on that hindsight, you're like, oh, I guess uh, that would have been a good investment that, you know, they, they still worked out as a long-term company. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's a bunch. I'm going to need some therapy after talking about this, but <laughs> that's okay. We have a company called Talkspace, so I can do it online. 
Um, so, you know, there's, there's a few that I can recall where, uh, you know, I kind of kicked myself. I could have invested fairly early on in Snapchat and I didn't, wow. and I didn't, I won't go into all the details of why I didn't, but, uh, it was, it was more around, uh, you know, the ethical aspects than it was anything else. Uh, I also could have invested in SoFi and, uh, didn't because the expert that I talked to, um, about that specific space, it wasn't a space that, uh, before looking at it, I knew a real lot about. So in order to get up to speed, I, I always kind of talk to people who I think are experts. And there was this one individual who supposedly was an expert in the area and, uh, he convinced me not to do it. And I learned a very important lesson from that is don't listen to anybody else. You know, I kind of had my gut was kind of telling me that this was interesting and different and new and potentially a category and novel. And I got talked out of it. And, uh, you know, I kind of learned, don't let anybody talk you out of it. If you feel it in your gut, don't let anybody talk you out of it. Yeah. Trust your gut. No, no doubt. Um, all right. Well, light boxer. So now, you know, you're, an entrepreneur running a company. Uh, so, so talk about kind of the, how that came together. Like you, how'd you meet Jeff Morin, like the background story of how Lightboxer came to fruition? Well, it, I mean, the genesis of Lightboxer was I took up boxing 18 years ago and I did it for fitness purposes. I, you know, a friend of mine was working out with this boxing instructor and he said, you got to try this. This is great. So I went and tried it. I was a little bit skeptical, but I went and tried it and I just loved it immediately. Uh, I loved the, the workouts were fantastic, but I really loved the sparring aspect and the challenge response. And, and it's kind of fun to punch things. You know, it just, uh, it's a great way to get a workout. I mean, boxing training is just the best workout you can do. The results are, have been shown to be the best, um, you know, number one way to, you know, to get fit um, based on the amount of time you can spend. Uh, so I really enjoy that. But, uh, you know, I was only doing it once a week and it was inconvenient. So I tried doing it at home. I bought heavy bags. I bought speed bags. I bought that rubber bob, you know, the uh, the torso uh, of a human that you punch. And it was just tedious and painful and boring. And I just it was it paled in comparison. And what was really missing was my trainer. You know, I wanted my trainer there and I wanted him to give me instructions and tips and <clears throat> technique. And also I wanted to bite him. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to punch, uh, at, you know, and spar with him, um, you know, and the, the, the sparring that I'm talking about is he would hold up these mitts and he'd say, okay, we're going to do this combination. And he'd hold the mitts up and you'd punch the mitts and you'd want to hit them just right. And you'd want to be quick and you'd hit them hard. And it was really challenging. And you'd get that visceral feedback of, you knew when you hit it, the right way and all that. And your trainer would give you the feedback. So um, I went looking on the market for a product and there was just nothing like it. So I said, look, and I, and I said, look, this might be a good idea for a product. And I remembered from when I used to, I taught at MIT for a while. I taught in the Sloan school and I taught entrepreneurship. And one of the main lessons I would teach students is I would say, there's a big difference between a good idea and a good business. So you can come up with a really good idea, but is that good idea going to be a good business? So I ended up doing a bunch of research on, you know, whether enough people would want this product, whether I could build it so it would work the way I wanted it to work, whether I could do it for a price where it could be affordable. And during that process, I went looking for a technical co-founder because I learned 
that guys like me need a technical co-founder. I might've had the vision and the business acumen, but I needed somebody who was really great at technology. I'd have some good experience with MIT. So I went fishing in the MIT pond and I found Jeff Morin, who was master's in engineering at MIT. He was working at the time uh, at a Somerville-based 3D printing company. He'd built military robots. He built that robot that you saw in the Hurt Locker that would go and you know detonate the bomb and all that. He was the perfect guy. He also had his own personal training certificate because he thought about starting a fitness company at one point, but he but he didn't. So I found him and immediately, you know, knew he was my guy. Uh, and I convinced him to go and do this with me at first part time. And we start doing prototyping. Uh, and at first we were going to have, you know, kind of one form factor. And then Jeff really took the idea and he took it to a whole nother level. He's just a, a technical whiz. Um, and he came up with basically the light box that you see now, which does what I wanted it to do. It is basically a sparring partner in your home. And we also have trainers that will take you through a full body workout that includes sparring. Uh, but also what you can do is you can just pick songs and punch the songs. Uh, so a song is like a round and we have these people who really understand rhythm gaming and music and they create these pleasing punch patterns, which basically hack into your brain. So what happens when you're using this product is we hack your brain. We get you so immersed in the experience that you kind of forget about time and pain and you're actually having fun and you're scoring points and you're feeling the punching. Um, and you also, uh, there's also a trainer aspect too, where the, the trainers are encouraging and help you with technique. And we capture, capture all this data and we feed it back to you and we motivate you further. And nothing's more motivating than music that you love and you're, you know, and you're synchronizing your workout to the beat of the music. So we basically uh, kind of get your brain to not think about pain and time and you get a better workout and then you want to do it again. Uh, so that's the whole secret behind Lightboxer really is this kind of in-home kind of gamified fitness product that doesn't suck. Like building a product like that, even with a Jeff is still really hard. Like how many iterations did it take you to get to the you know final product where you felt like, okay, we can go to market with this? A lot, a lot. And we basically built this computer display that you're supposed to hit as hard as you can. Uh, nobody had ever built something like that before where you're putting electronics in a device for the purpose of hitting it. Uh, so we had to, reliability had to be number one, performance was number two, cost was number three. Um, so we had to put all that together. Uh, we had to do synchronization. We had to synchronize music to the lights, the targets that you punch. We had to make it so that you could anticipate where your next punch is going to be so it wasn't whack-a-mole. So it was more like a, a rhythm gaming experience. Uh, and we had to do things like synchronize your speaker to the lights using low energy Bluetooth. And we had to create, so we created a lot of IP. We actually have nine patents uh, surrounding this product uh, because we stumble upon an idea and Jeff would just, you know, go into his little zone and he'd figure out the solution. And we hired a team around, Jeff hired a great technical team and they would just figure stuff out and we would patent it and they'd figure something else out and we would patent it. Uh, one thing we learned early on is uh, we didn't want to just have people hit a heavy bag because people don't want a heavy bag in their house. You fill it up with 300 pounds of sand and water and it's loud and noisy and ugly. And we just came up with something that was more uh, it was kind of like the uh, the inspiration that I have was part Tesla 
you know, if you, if Tesla, if Elon was going to build a, a punching product, what would it look like? So that was kind of, it would be cool looking, it would be sleek, it would be something you'd be happy to have in your home. And then we took some inspiration from Peloton, which is they convinced people to take this ugly piece of metal, put it in their home and actually brag about it and show people pictures of it. So we took a bit of a lesson from that. And then the other lesson that uh, some people on my team wished I wouldn't talk about is that I wanted this product to look like it could be on the spaceship uh, in an alien versus predator movie and you wouldn't, and it wouldn't seem out of place. So it'd be something cool and sleek and it would have these lights and it would have, and it would just be something that you could see these guys using as using to train so that they could go out and, uh, you know, defeat the predator, stuff like that. So one of the things that you're talking about as well is, uh, you know, the music element. And I remember hearing at some point that if it's not the largest, well, it's, it's one of the largest expenses for Peloton is their royalty licensing of music expense. (laughs) So how does that come into play? Yeah. You know, it's not cheap. Uh, It's a, it's the decent chunk of our subscription. Uh, So, you know, we charge, charge for the hardware and then we charge for the subscription. Also we charge on a monthly basis, we charge 29 bucks, which is significantly less than Peloton and even more significantly less than tonal. Uh, we, we wanted to price it so that, you know, we rewarded people for using it for a long time uh, over and over. So uh, we, we priced it as such. So um, yeah, so music is core to what we do. It's, it's uh, very important to us. Uh, it's what it's part of what differentiates us because you don't just have background music. You are actually punching to the beat and that punching to the beat is part of the magic. You know, you're not only playing a game, but you're punching synchronized to the beat of music and your body just is naturally tuned to that rhythm and to that beat. You know, it's like we're tuned to heartbeats and we're tuned to drum beats uh, and we're tuned to rhythms. And if you can exercise to a rhythm, you uh, science has shown that it's a more effective workout because you are in a rhythm. So, uh, so, you know, it's, like I said, it's an expense, but it's one where we think it's worth it. And, you know, these connected fitness uh, products, you know, they're also a production company are creating content continuously. So how, how do you go about building that side of the business? So, you know, we built a studio uh, where we produce our videos. Uh, it took us a while to, to, learn about how best to do it. You know, it's everything from cameras to sound to lighting, all of that. Um, you know, luckily we brought in some really good people who, who understood how to do that. Um, and we also learned what kind of a trainer we're looking for. At first we wanted pretty authentic boxing trainers. Uh, and what we found fairly soon was that, uh, you know, it's okay if they're an authentic boxing trainer, but they have to have a personality that works well through a tablet or a TV and it has to, they have to project well. It's kind of like, you know, we had people that one-on-one were fantastic, but you put them on, you know, video and they're in that they just, they just aren't compelling. So we looked for people who had the personality that could connect with, uh, you know, with our customers through the screen. And that's what we have now. I mean, we've gotten, we've got to the point now where we've got about a dozen instructors who are really good some of them used to be Soul Cycle. Some of them used to be Barry's Boot Camp. They used to be Rumble. They used to be Grit, um, and they learned about the importance of music and they learned about the importance of connecting to your audience. Uh, they all have boxing training. They all have a minimum of like three, three to three years of boxing training with really good instructors. So they have become 
you know, very technical, but they also perform. You know, they connect with the audience. Well, you announced a, a round of funding recently, your Series A, 28 and a half million, led by Nimble Ventures. We'll also, um, Jim Pallotta, the co-owner of the Boston Celtics, yeah. and Timbaland, which uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting how a lot of these celebrities are getting involved, whether it's athletes, musicians, mm-hmm. actors, are now showing up on cap tables as investors. And, um, you know, uh, there's a lot going on in the fitness category. And in Boston, you have Hydro, which is uh, really cool what they're doing with, the, with rowing. And they have Kevin Hart as, you know, one of their, uh, you know, I forget his title, but something to do like head of contents, right? And he's an investor. Yep. So, so what is that trend? Like having, you know, a Timbaland, who's a well-known uh, musician, producer, you know, have someone like that to support the product. So we, we wanted to, you know, music is important to us, right? So we wanted to have people who could help us with our music strategy and all that. Timberland's a genius. And, you know, you, you, people know Timberland as a performer, but actually he's been much more successful as a producer. I mean, he just understands how to create content that moves people. And that's what we do. We create content that moves people as well. And we get people to exercise more effectively through the use of music and gamification and all that. Uh, incidentally, we, uh, we have Pitbull uh, as an investor too. Uh, okay. you know, know, we're, you know, rather than going out and making a big deal about all these celebrities that have invested, we have celebrities have invested and some of them we haven't even mentioned yet. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we will, when there's something to talk about, um, we've got a number of other, uh, you know, athletes and, uh, musicians that are investors. I mean, what we didn't do is go, I mean, there've been some fitness companies have gone out and they lead with this investor is an, this athlete or that athlete or this former boxer. And uh, I can tell you that all of our, um, you know, celebrity investors are actual investors. They didn't invest in kind. They didn't just say, okay, you can use my name and give me some stock and I'm an investor. They put their own money in to the company. Uh, So um, I, I know of a number of examples where others didn't necessarily follow that rule, but we did. If you're an investor, you're an investor. You've got skin in the game. You're not just an in-kind investor or whatever. So um, I think it's important to have influencers. We've got a number of people that are influencers and it's not the kind of thing where we're paying people to just post on their Instagram. We are only working with people who have authentically uh, used Lightboxer. In other words, they've made it a habit and, and they they see the value. And that that's the kind of influencer we wanna have because we think it's authentic. We're all about authenticity and you know, so, you know, we didn't, like I said, we didn't lead with necessarily uh, celebrities, but we do understand the importance of having people who understand what we're trying to accomplish and have a, and, and, and see the value to also to use them to help get the word out. The, the thing about Lightbox, it's so different that part of our, our challenge is just educating people on what it is. Until you see it in action, until you try it, you can't fully appreciate it. So we, you know, we have great video on the website and, you know, and we try to, you know, have people talk about it. Most of our sales have come from word of mouth and coming from people who have people over their house and say, hey, check this out. And the people say, well, I want one. And so we have that organic growth, which has been the main driver. Um, yes, we've done advertising and we've done PR and all that. But uh, that's really more about education, just so people know what this product does. I think what's also been helpful for this category is how 
the companies have been smart about pricing and making it, you know, a, you're not going to spend $1,500, $2,000 out of your pocket to purchase this piece of equipment that you hope you're going to use. It's priced out over time, right? So Peloton, you know, it's, you're paying a firm to finance your Peloton bike and you're doing something similar where it's what, $42 a month to get the hardware. And obviously you're paying your subscription. Yeah. So what we're, what we're offering is a, is a, a, a less expensive alternative to going to the gym. I mean, gyms for years and years were basically what I call equipment arbitrage. You know, you can't have all that equipment in your house. You can't afford it. You don't have room for it. So you go to a gym because all that equipment is there. Then gyms also became a social place and all of that. Uh, but then a lot of people don't want to go to a gym or a lot of people now uh, have decided that because of what's available now, you can get many of the benefits and even some benefits you can't get. I mean, you don't, you don't have to travel. It, it's less expensive. It's more convenient. You don't have to worry about other people, uh, you know, being around and, and all that. Um, you don't have to take a shower there and all that. I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> things that people prefer not to do that now. And there are, and I, we, we meet a lot of people that said, I've always wanted to take up boxing, but I never wanted to go to a gym and do it because I felt self-conscious. Now I can do it in my home. Nobody's watching. Uh, but I can get that experience that I would get with a trainer in a gym. I can get that at home. So that's really what we've tried to accomplish. Yeah, that's a no brainer. I mean, I, I, I used to have gym memberships for many years. I forget the last time I paid a gym and I, I, I'll never return. I mean, I've got my treadmill, my Peloton, and hopefully soon a light box or where, what else do you need? Right. And then you can just run outside during the summer, which is what I love to do. But so like now that you've raised your series a, like what are the, the plans for growth? I mean, you talked about hopefully a lot of word of mouth, but how do you get a product like this out there to consumers that you start to see, you know, the growth of sales? Well, you know, with COVID, COVID on the one hand, of course, accelerated this whole move to connected fitness. So we benefited from that. On the other hand, it also meant it was difficult for us to exhibit the product. Like I said, this product sells itself. If people get to experience it, they, they're more likely to want one, right? And we didn't, you know, we didn't go out into malls and put these, put stores out in the malls and all that. But so now we're going to be engaging in a whole bunch of activities where we're going to take the product to the public and let them experience it. So we've got some initiatives around exposing people to the product and vice versa. And, you know, we're going to do some, you know, I can't necessarily talk about everything we're going to do, but people are going to start seeing light boxes in the wild. Um, so we're going to do some of that. Um, you know, we're going to invest some of the money that we raised in just kind of building some infrastructure to, to do that. We're going to continue to build infrastructure to create compelling content. Um, you know, we create content every day, pretty much. Um, and we're going to continue to do that. We've got some pro new product uh, extensions coming out that I'm excited about. Um, you know, we've, we've got some things coming in, uh, you know, the, uh, the fall and beyond that uh, are going to just broaden our market opportunity. Um, we're still going to be a fitness product and we're still going to yeah, have boxing as, you know, kind of the training modality, if you will, but we're just going to broaden uh, the reach of the product, uh, you know, different, both form factor and, um, you know, kind of a uh, content driven approach. So that'll be coming. So I'm excited about that. We're, we're continuing to invest in building a great team. Um, you know, we're, you know, we're still pretty small and agile uh, and, uh, you know, we need to get a little bigger and, uh, you know, and uh, right now uh, I think we're just scratching the surface of what's, what the potential is. And we just need to 
you know, we used it. We need to spread our tentacles a bit. Now, we keep talking about creating content. You have experience as a film producer, <laughs> which is another fun piece of your background. So how did you get involved with that? And what was that experience like? That experience was really, it was a kind of a, a, a dual process for me. One is I've always loved film and entertainment content. And uh, I grew up just as a, just watching movies and watching TV. And uh, I also, you know, even when I was a kid, I would create content. I would, I would, as soon as video cameras came out, I had to have one and I would just create videos and things like that. And um, always had that yearning. But also when I was leaving Battery and starting Spark, I knew I wanted to invest in content and I didn't want to be the, the lamb that wandered into the pack of wolves. Um, so I said, I'm going to go get a master's degree in content. So I'm going to, you know, start a production company. I'm going to make some movies. I'm going to uh, just experience what it's like to produce and distribute and monetize content. So got involved and started a help start a production company, helped get several movies produced, helped get a off-Broadway play produced that turned into a Broadway play, which turned into a movie, uh, Rock of Ages, but it was the was the uh, the film that started off. You were involved in Rock of Ages? Well, the production company I was involved with basically came up with Rock of Ages. And we were gonna do do a, a rock opera based on a Cindy Lauper, based on her songs. And then we ended up not doing that. And instead we said, let's do hair band songs and create a rock opera around hair band songs. Because uh, a bunch of us remembered hair band songs. They were- I, I love that genre. You're hitting a, 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 I actually watched that movie for the first time over Memorial Day when it was pouring rain all weekend. It was just on and I'm like, I finally need to watch this because I love, the music and I was like, this was an awesome experience. It was exactly what I hoped it was going to be. Oh, it was it was a great experience. It was great. Uh, I scratched my itch. I also learned, you know, thank God I didn't get in, you know go into movies as my vocation. Uh, you know, it's a tough business. Uh, you know, it's one of the only businesses where you you are dependent on things like agents and managers and uh, studios and things like that, which is a whole whole nother podcast. But anyway. Uh, I enjoyed it, but it, it clearly wasn't going to be uh, something I wanted to do. It was, it was more of an educational process. So it cost me about what it would cost to get um, another master's degree and, uh, you know, been there, done that. And I think it really helped me understand, you know, just, <clears throat> you know, how to, you know, how to produce and distribute and monetize content and, and what, you know, what works and what doesn't. And that's, that's helped a bit with Lightboxer and understanding, you know, what kind of content to produce and uh, how to monetize it. Now, another side to you is uh, definitely a, a lot of uh, charitable organizations that you have either started or support. So, talk about some of those some of those details. Yeah, you know, so I've been involved with uh, a number of uh, nonprofits that have been in and around healthcare. You know, healthcare is something I care deeply about, especially when it comes to kids. You know. So when I was born, I had a problem and I went to Children's Hospital in Boston and they fixed me up. Um, and, uh, you know, I've gone on the Children's Hospital Trust Board. I've been on that for a while. Uh, I got involved with Brigham Women's Hospital because I wanted to uh, work with a leading hospital on uh, doing brain science research. Uh, I care a lot about brain science. I've been uh, interested in brain science for many years and decided I needed to put my money where my mouth with mouth is. And I uh, have been 
um, helping uh, a group at Brigham and Women's work on brain imaging, uh, trying to understand how the brain works. You know, brains are networks. I understand a little bit about networks and circuits and, uh, you know, imagine that your brain is like this big kind of uh, integrated circuit driven computer and you need to make sure the circuits are all firing when they're supposed to. Um, and uh, oftentimes there are problems in the brain that manifest themselves in all sorts of neurological disorders. And I thought, you know, we know so much about our cars. We go plug our cars in at the shop and it tells us what's wrong with the car, but we have no idea what's wrong with us. So um, anyway, so spent a bunch of effort there and then um, been involved with a number of other, uh, my wife is very involved with the Boys and Girls Club of Boston and we've gotten involved in some uh, you know, activities there. Um, she's on the board there and that's something we care about. I mean, we, you know, I helped uh, start a nonprofit where I try to apply a venture capital model to nonprofit where, where can you uh, get the biggest bang for the buck? And I can tell you, I got some backlash from that. And it's like, you shouldn't be thinking about return. You, you know, you venture capitalists, you, you know, all you care about is return. You should be thinking about uh, not at return, but human compassion. And I'm like, well, that is what I'm thinking about. Where can I put a dollar in that can generate the greatest uh, impact and impact being measured, not in dollars, but in how many people you help. So kind of went there, did that. Um, and I think that, that that's just my style. Now, it's not for everybody. Not everybody should be investing in impact oriented because then some charities that don't necessarily generate huge amount of impact are still worthwhile and they should be supported because people have a real attachment and emotional attachment to them. Absolutely. But everybody has to have a style. And that was my style. So just thinking, you know, some, I always try to include a couple of questions that are helping entrepreneurs with, you know, their you know, building of companies and obviously you've done so much. So what, what advice would you give to founders on uh, hiring and recruiting like that first layer of management team? You know, they kind of have maybe their co-founders and it's like, wait, we're starting to scale. We need to hire a VP of engineering, head of sales, head of marketing. Like, like how, how should you think about building out your leadership team? What I would encourage an entrepreneur to do, particularly if it's, if it's one person that wants to start a company, I would encourage that person to look in the mirror and recognize what they don't see. So in other words, you're seeing yourself, you're good at some, you're good at something. Hopefully you're really good at something. And then there's other things you're just not that great at. I recognize that I needed a technical co-founder um, and I went and found one. And I think that if you're a business oriented person or if you have this vision of what you want the product to be, uh, and it's a, it's a product that depends on technology, you better have a great technical founder. I see companies all the time that come in and they say, um, yeah, uh, we're outsourcing the development of our software or whatever to this third party and it's very effective for us and it's efficient and all that. And I say, no, 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 no. I, I, you know, I have a bias towards having that technology know-how in-house so that you can't get the wool pulled over your eyes. And, um, you know, one, thing's, one thing, and it may be the most important criterion for success is persistence. And having somebody on the team that is persistent at getting technology to work is just undeniably important. You just have to have that. Uh, so it's just making sure that you, your co-founders or your first people you bring in complete you. You know, it's like, what don't you see in the mirror? 
you know, if you're a technology person, where's that person with the business acumen who has the ability to go help, you know, with that go-to-market aspect? And if you're that go-to-market business person with the vision, who's going to make sure this thing rocks? This, you know, that that the technology rocks. So I, so that's kind of one uh, important aspect of it. And and the other is just to make sure it's a good business and not a good, not just a good idea. You know, you have to. You have to kind of look and say, you know, are do enough people would enough people buy this at a price I can build it for to warrant taking people's money and and kind of going out and spending years and millions and millions of dollars to try to to make a go of it. So you know, and you know the and the main difference between a, a good idea and a good business is is really just you know it's it's math. It's like you build it for X, you sell it for Y, and multiplied by how many times can you sell it you know and what does it cost you to sell it and then you kind of come up with that and if the answer is yes then prepare for a you know a real wild ride um now more and more people are getting vaccinated companies are starting to open up their offices again employees are starting to connect again over water cooler conversations um, but then there's going to be more remote first companies or a hybrid model. So what do you think the future of work will look like now that, you know, people are starting to figure out the new normal? Yeah. I mean, the pendulum's going to swing back clearly. I mean, yeah, it's going to swing back to people going back to gyms, but not as many and not as often. And then people are going to go back to work because work is a social, it's social things happen at work that don't happen online. Uh, you know, I've seen it even at Lightbox where, you know, you hire somebody that you haven't really spent any time with because of COVID. And then you learn later things that you wish you knew before, you know, it just happens. It's, it's the nature of the beast. Uh, I think when people get together and collaborate, uh, you build that camaraderie um, and you can't replicate that, you know, Zoom or nobody else is going to figure out how to replicate that. You just don't replicate that. So my view is the hybrid model will win. Uh, people won't go to have to go to work, um, you know, nine to five or whatever, five days a week. They'll go to work when they need to. They'll stay home when they can. Uh, you know, with Lightbox, so early on, we started building a, a virtual team uh, because it made sense for us because we wanted the best people we could possibly hire. And they didn't all live in Massachusetts. So we hired people in California. We hired people in Pennsylvania, New York. Uh, we even had some people overseas just because they were the people that we knew from the past that we knew were really good at what we needed to get done. Uh, we now have a significant pod of people in uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, you know, just outside of Boston. And I love going in there and feeling that energy. We built this hive where it's buzzing. You can't get that online. You don't get that uh, with collaboration apps or with uh, video conferencing. You just can't get it. Uh, so uh, what we do is we have that. People aren't there every day. They're there when they should, when they need to be. Uh, they're there when they want to be, and we also make sure that people get together in person uh, when there's the most benefit to that happening. So it's no longer obligatory. I can remember, believe me, I remember having to go in at a certain time because I had to beat the boss in, and I had to leave after the boss left just so I could show that I'm working hard. Now that's that. Throw that model out the out the window. Now it's what do you produce? You know, and, you know, it's come full circle because, uh, you know, I'll be walking around the house and I'll be like, you know, 
doing what I do. And my, uh, my kids will be visiting me. I have two, you know, 28, 27 year old kids and they're on their laptops, uh, you know, basically eight hours a day glued to their laptops because their companies know if they're on their laptops or not, or if they're kind of logged in and if they're, their mouse is moving and things like that. So um, it's kind of come full circle there. Uh, but I think the hybrid model where you can build that sense of camaraderie and you can feel like you're on a team uh, and you can, you know, exude those creative juices and passion, uh, but not obligatory, beat the boss into work, stay, stay longer than the boss and just, you know, sit in your seat and make believe you're busy for eight hours a day. Yeah, I agree. I think the hybrid model definitely is going to be what wins and, uh, you know, it's going to be more effective. People will be happier, you know, less time commuting, but still have that engagement when you are in the office and collaborate as teams. So uh, I, I think that's definitely the wave of the future. Well, Todd, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and, you know, all the things that you've done as an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, uh, you know, and all your charitable work. So there's uh, a lot more that we could have talked about, but, uh, you know, I, I appreciate all the stories. I think we covered the waterfront pretty much. <laughs> we certainly did. Covered the things I wouldn't talk about anyway. So I think that was pretty good. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.